This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know, wherever you get podcasts. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour, a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Welcome to the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. For fans of Bruce Springsteen, and there are a lot of us, this has been a complicated year. Some shows had personnel changes because of COVID, and some of the fall tour was canceled in the end as Springsteen recovered from an ulcer. But in 2024, he'll go back out on tour all over the U.S., Canada, and Europe from the spring through next November. This guy can't be stopped. Now, I'm not really impartial here. I first set eyes on Bruce Springsteen in June of 1973. I was 14, a boy from North Jersey, and I told my parents some kind of lie, and I took a bus across the river all by myself to New York City, and I had a $4 ticket in my pocket to see a band called Chicago, which was huge at the time, if you're old enough to remember, 25 or 6 to 4 and all that stuff. Anyway, I climbed to the highest seat in Madison Square Garden, the old blue seats, and out trundled this opening act, a skinny guitar slinger and songwriter from down the shore. And it turned out this guy was outrageous. He was singing, dancing, stabbing at his guitar, leading the band with a crazy urgency, bursting all the while through the indifference of an arena crowd that had not come to see him at all. They had come to see Chicago. But in every sense, he was brilliant. Now, Springsteen hated those gigs at Madison Square Garden as a backup, but they were a breakthrough. His career took off even as he re-entered the realm of smaller arenas. And now 50 years later, 50 years later, he's racked up more than 20 top 10 albums, Presidential Medal of Freedom, an Academy Award, a one-man Broadway show, and more Grammys than you can count, as well as a terrific autobiography called Born to Run. Born to Run came out in 2016, and I sat down with Bruce Springsteen to talk at the New Yorker Festival. Let me ask you this. People tend to write their memoirs at different points in their their lives. Barack Obama wrote his when he was, I think, barely in his 30s. You've waited. You've probably thought about this over the years, no? Why now? Well, I wanted to do it before I, I forgot everything, you know. <laughs> so, uh, um, 
So it's uh, it's getting a little edgy with some of that. So I, so this was this was the time. Did you, you know? do any research? Did you think, oh my, I forgot all about X, Y, or Z, and I have to go look at the clips, or John Landau's going to remind me, or Patty's going to remind me? I had a few friends I called up. I, buddy George Thedis was in the cast deals with me. I gave him a call, and we threw around some of the cast deals memories. Um, the, the trickiest part to write, it was the th third section of the book where it's all people you're living with and people you currently, you know, have a life with. And so you're, you know, you're more, a little more sensitive about, about that section when Patty was very helpful with me there. As Cut, a censor or? No. Or? <laughs> Not really. She, she cut me a lot of slack and gave me a lot of room to uh, express myself, you know. So I have to thank her for that. T-Bone Burnett once said that rock and roll is one long scream of daddy. <laughs> I believe that's true, you know? It's true in my case anyway. <laughs> and, I, and, and your father and his, uh, the reality of your relationship and his difficulties and the anxiety caused you when you're young and its afterlife and its profound influence on your work is a dominant uh, part of this book, and I, I wondered if you could read, there's a passage on page, in fact, 29 we discussed before we came in. Yep. Get out those reading glasses. <laughs> Put those cameras down. <laughs> I only use them in bed. Twi <laughs> there it is. All right, uh, okay, here we go. Unfortunately, my dad's desire to engage with me always came after the nightly religious ritual of the sacred six-pack. It was one beer after another in the pitch dark of our kitchen. It was always then that he wanted to see me. It was always the same. A few moments of feigned parental concern for my well-being followed by the real deal, the hostility and raw anger toward his son, the only other man in the house. It was a shame. He loved me, but he couldn't stand me. He felt we competed for my mother's affections. We did. He also saw in me too much of his real self. My pop was built like a bull, always in work clothes. He was strong, physically formidable. Toward the end of his life, he fought back from death many times. Inside, however, beyond his rage, he harbored a gentleness, a timidity, shyness, and a dreamy insecurity. These were all the things that I wore on the outside. And reflections of these qualities in his boy repelled him, made him angry. It was soft. He hated soft. Of course, he'd been brought up soft, a mama's boy just like me. One evening at the kitchen table, late in life, when he was not well, he told me a story of being pulled out of a fight he was having in the schoolyard. My grandmother had walked over from our house and dragged him home. He recounted his humiliation and said, eyes welling, I was winning. I was winning. He still didn't understand he could not be risked. He was the one remaining living child. My grandmother, confused, could not realize her untempered love was destroying the men she was raising. I told him I understood that we'd been raised by the same woman in some of the most formative years of our lives, and suffered many of the same humiliations. However, back in the days when our relationship was at its most tempestuous, 
These things remain mysteries, created a legacy of pain and misunderstanding. I, I think, Bruce, part of the emotional power of that is that you understand so much of it now, but in, in real time, yeah. as a young person, you understood so little. In other words, what's the gulf? How long did it take you to begin to understand him from the, from the inside? Well, let me see. 35, 40, I don't know, 50 years, two psychiatrists, one died on me already. <laughs> Long time. <laughs> and at the same time in this book, there's a, a kind of a heroic enlightening presence in your life and in this book that's a kind of counterpoint to your father, and that's your mother. And one of the most touching things about it is that she not only, by force of will, holds this family together, but it's also a musical presence in your life. She's sitting there watching this music that you would have thought was incomprehensible to someone of her generation. She loved it. Yeah, I mean, when you think about it, she was, you know, when I was 13, what was she, 30? She's only in her early 30s, probably, you know? Um, you know, mid-30s, and, and so, she was excited by Elvis Presley, and, and she was interested in the Beatles, and she had, we had the radio on top of the refrigerator that played top 40 music uh, every morning when you came downstairs. Music was a big part of, of her life, and she was, you know, we always had the radio on in the car, so I heard all the hit records of the day, and, and I think music was kind of passed down in the Italian side of my family. They all played piano a little bit, and uh, of course, there was a lot of singing and, and, and carrying on. You know, but, but, but you couldn't, po <laughs> you, you couldn't possibly have thought that this is my way out, the way some kids will think oh, about no. sports. No, it was just something that, that obsessed me when I was young, and you didn't have any idea where it was going to take you, you know. I mean, uh, you looked at the covers of those records, and you dreamed and dreamed of... Uh, uh, but it was a million miles away, so... Why was Asbury such a big music scene? It's not, it's not such a big place. Um, it's pretty far from New York. Uh, but it had an incredibly lively music scene, an outsized lively music scene at that time. It was, uh, it was like a Jersey Shore, Fort Lauderdale. It was a place where uh, you know, people came to uh, the summer. You know, it was a big season, and, and bands came from all over to apply their, uh, their wares there in Asbury. So it was a, a center for top 40 bands who came in, played all the little beach clubs and nightclubs, and it was just a natural gathering place for musicians. And it had a very, very unusual club called the Upstage Club where uh, that was open from eight to uh, there were no survivors, so whoever's clapping, <laughs> I, I don't believe you were there. But um, uh, it was open from eight, 8 to 5, which was very unusual. No, sold no booze, so you could be a kid and get in. Um, and the bars closed at 3, 
So those final two hours, every musician would line up on the street outside the upstage to get in and play the music that they really wanted to play in the club after hours. So there was an amazing clearinghouse for musicians. When I listen to what, what surviving records there are and recordings from those early days and read about it, it seems like a million influences are going on at one time. You had one band that was kind of like Mad Dogs and Englishmen. You had, it was this gigantic yeah. band. You had a trio at one point. You're playing yeah, kind of... Yeah, I had tried it all, you know, so... Uh, <laughs> But uh, it was just different. I was kind of following the times a little bit, you know, and I had a nice three-piece band that was, that was fun to, to play in where I got to play a lot of guitar and we kind of half-assed Jimi Hendrix and the Cream stuff, you know. And uh, I had a big band, 10-piece band, uh, similar to the band we had out uh, on the Wrecking Ball tour where there was a, horn, horn, a couple of horns and a couple of singers and we played a lot of R&B and all original music. So uh, I, I bounced around in a lot of different genres trying to find something that, that settled yeah, me. You, and you played teen clubs, you played, I think, even trailer parks, and you even played the Marlboro Psychiatric Hospital. <laughs> and, and if yeah. I'm right, you played the animal song, We Gotta Get Out of This Place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good set list. Uh, we just played all over, you know, and... and uh, <laughs> Somehow we got booked at the psychiatric hospital, and it was, uh, my main recollection was a guy got up on stage and gave a long introduction of the band, uh, went on, went on, went on, we were waiting to go on, then somebody came up and took him away. <laughs> and at some point, though, you realized, I'm, I'm a good guitar player, but I'm not Jimi Hendrix. I'm a good singer, but maybe I'm not Roy Orbison and my way to become an original is to write my own songs. How does that start? How do you have the kind of, um, give yourself the permission to sit down and create for yourself? Well, we'd played a lot, and we'd been around a lot by that time. You know, I'd traveled across the country a couple of times with the band, and we'd seen some other bands, and I'd, I'd you know, we thought we were pretty good, but, uh, I would occasionally bump into somebody who I said, well, they got a little bit of an edge on us. Uh, and I come home and at some point, I was in my early 20s and I just tried to assess my talents one by one. And I said, well, guitar player. Well, I'm a good guitar player. Uh, better than a lot of guys. Uh, I'm not the best. So, singer, well, that's a tough one, you know? <laughs> I never thought I had much of a voice, so uh, I'm gonna have to learn how to sing, how to sing as best as I can, but uh, I'm never gonna make my way just as a singer, you know? Um, plus, I'd been writing all along, but I was at a moment where I just came to a crossroads, and I said, well, if I'm going to take the next step, I'm gonna have to write some songs that are fireworks, you know, that, that uh, uh, I'll be able to to put across with just the guitar, my voice, and my song, because I wasn't working in a band at the time, and I felt I needed to do something that was more original, and uh, uh, I just sat down at the piano, and, and I just started to uh, hack out the uh, songs from Greetings from Asbury Park. Madman drummers, bombers, and Indians in the summer with a teenage diplomat. In the dumps with the mumps is the animal. I'm talking with Bruce Springsteen. Bruce realized that if he was going to make it, he'd have to make it as a songwriter. 
And pretty quickly after that, he had a life-changing encounter with John Hammond, a legendary record producer who had discovered everyone from Billie Holiday to Bob Dylan. We're going to hear exactly how that audition went down in just a moment on the New Yorker Radio Hour. So stick around. WNYC Studios is supported by Lincoln Financial. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. This episode is brought to you by Empower. Can you retire early? Will there be enough money to leave an inheritance? Do you have savings for life's important milestones? If you have money questions, Empower has answers so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. I'm Roz Chast from The New Yorker. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. What is it about Dana-Farber that makes it such a powerful adversary against cancer? It's hundreds of Dana-Farber researchers and clinicians making new discoveries inspired by the work of previous Dana-Farber discoverers. At Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, nothing is as effective against cancer as a relentless succession of breakthroughs. Go to DanaFarber.org slash everywhere and see how what we do here changes lives everywhere. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. And this week, we're dedicating the New Yorker Radio Hour, all of it, to the favorite son of New Jersey, my home state, Bruce Springsteen. In the late 60s and early 70s, Springsteen was a fixture on the Asbury Park music scene, playing night after night after night at bars and roller rinks, Elks clubs and VFWs with his comrades, people like Stevie Van Zandt. He was schooled in R&B and soul, as well as the songwriting of new people on the scene like Bob Dylan. By 1972, he was looking for a recording contract. Now, at, at an early point, you managed to get an audition with the great John Hammond, who had discovered any number of jazz greats. Sitting across from John Hammond with just your guitar in an office, right? how did he, he seem to know right away? As he's, that, and that has happened historically any number of times. Leonard Cohen, Bob Dylan, Billie Holiday, Count Basie. Uh, yeah, that was, a, that was a wild, wild day because uh, I didn't have an acoustic guitar, so I had to borrow one from... Vinnie Skibot's Maniello, who was the, 
original drummer in the Castiles. You just made up that name, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> no. There was a Baby Bots and a Mrs. Bots also. But um, so I borrowed a guitar. I said, Vinny lent me the guitar, but it didn't have a case. So I have to get on the bus, and I got to go to New York with uh, kind of the guitar over my shoulder, which is uh, very embarrassing, you know? <laughs> it's... Uh, but mythological uh, almost. I mean, yeah. yeah. So we get to the city, and amazingly enough, the music business was... was uh, at that moment was such that John Hammond, one of the greatest A&R men and producers uh, of our time, were seeing idiots off the street, you know? Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, that was the lay of the land, amazingly enough. So I had two choices. I could say, well, okay, this is your moment, Mr. Big Shot. When you're gonna see if you've got anything or you don't. I decided not to do that to myself. <laughs> and instead, I tried to do a little mental jujitsu where I said, Well, I have nothing. So I have nothing to lose. If nothing happens, I'm gonna walk out the same as I walked in. And, yeah, I almost convinced myself of it by the time I got up there. <laughs> I couldn't completely buy my own bullshit, but I tried. <laughs> but we went in, and uh, there was John Hammond sitting across the, 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 this very small room, you know, not much bigger than his carpet, little tiny corner room, had the gray suit on, the tie, the gray flat top haircut, the horn rim glasses. We walk in and Mike Appel, my manager, immediately begins to hype me. Uh, I'm the next biggest thing since Shakespeare and Bozo the Clown. <laughs> and, uh, and tells John Hammond that he brought me to him to see if he really had ears or if discovering Dylan was a fluke. <laughs> now, I'm standing there with my naked guitar, having one of the biggest weenie shrinkers of all time. And, you know, so Mike is happy that he said his piece, and he goes and sits on the windowsill and folds his arms. And John Hammond says, who's ready to hate us by that time, says, well, play me something. So I sat down and uh, I closed my eyes and I played him Saint in the City. Well, I had skin like leather and the diamond hard look of a cobra. I was born blue and weathered, but I burst just like a supernova. Well, I walked like Brando right into the sun Danced just like a Casanova You know, with my black jack and jacket and hair slick sweet Silver star studs on my duds like a Harley and heat But when I flopped down the street, I could hear its heartbeat And all the women fell back and said, don't that man look good Cripple on the corner cries nickels for your pity And gasoline boys downtown they sure talk gritty It's so hard to be a saint in the city 
And uh, when I was done, I looked up. He had that big smile on his face. Said, "You got to be on Columbia Records." <laughs> Now, one element we haven't discussed is that the, the great addition to the musical presence of, of your playing was Clarence Clemens. And this, and this was not just a, somehow a musical addition to the band. This was, um, there was some, a spiritual dimension to it. Um, shamanistic, you, that's the word you use in the book. Yeah. Well, a, ba a band is a dream, you know. It's, it's, it's a dream that you have. It's a dream that all your band members are having. It's a dream of another world, of some other place, you know, a place that feels uh, adventurous, that feels, uh, I suppose, safe, that where you feel you have, you're accepted. And a, a real band is a very, 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 very particular and special thing. So the connections you make amongst your band members become near sacred positions as you get older. Clarence was like a dream I had, you know. I'd, I'd been looking for years for a saxophonist because I love the great sax solos from the great soul records and the Dion records and I just wanted to hear that sound, you know. And a real rock and roll saxophonist is hard to come by, you know. You don't want to you don't want a jazz guy that'll come in and kind of slum with you. You need somebody who just is an R&B player. And that was Clarence. Clarence was playing with a band called Little Melvin and the Invaders. Uh, they were a local soul band that Gary Talent happened to be playing bass in. So Clarence was a bit mythic in the area before anyone met him with the exception of Gary. And then of course he came into the club we were playing in one night and he wandered to the stage and asked if he could sit in and he got up and and the sound that came out of his saxophone was a, a real force of nature it was you know so I get to stand next to Clarence when and I hear Clarence's sound before it goes into the microphone It was just an amazing thing to stand next to and, and, and to hear. And then also Clarence's presence was unique. You know, he was, uh, was just a unique person on the planet. You know, he was just, it was just only one of them. Let, let's play the beginning of a song that's the, let's, the title track of the book, like if, if we can call it that. Okay. And, <laughs>
you've heard of that song. So a lot is going on there. You've, you've got I, Peter Gunn and Dwayne Eddy and Elvis and Dylan and you and a million things going on all at once. Everything I could think of. Every, <laughs> but, ser but seriously, it is everything you could think of. It's everything you could get in there, isn't it? Oh, it was. I, I threw the kitchen sink and everything else at it. You know, it was... Uh, I talk about it in the book. I said I wanted to make a record that felt like, okay, this is the last record you're ever going to hear. And then the apocalypse, my friend. <laughs> and so I wanted to make a sound that would, uh, fe it would feel like that. You know, it would feel completely cathartic, you know, uh, over the top. You know, I was trying to make one of the greatest records I'd ever heard, you know, so. And, and you succeeded, God knows. And if you... And yet, if I remember, when the record was finished, rather than release it, you threw it into a swimming pool because you didn't think it was ready yet. Well, I had second thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had second thoughts, but I have second thoughts about everything. So uh, the record came down, and, and the album was supposed to be done, and I'm not sure if I was ready for it to be done because it would mean people were going to hear it. And I wasn't sure I was ready for that. So Jimmy Iovine visited me somewhere out on the road in Richmond, Virginia, I think, and we played it. We had to go down to a stereo store in town because there, was, there were only records in those days and you needed a record player and you didn't carry one on the road. So you had to go to the record player store and, and ask the guy if you could play your album on one of their systems. So we went in the back and Iveen was walking back and forth and back and forth and watching me, watching me, watching me to see what my response was. And my response internally was, I just want to get out of here, you know. <laughs> I don't want to have to listen or think anymore. And I think at the end of the day, we came back to the motel and I threw it in the pool and that was my... <laughs> but uh, it all worked out later, I, I think. <laughs> I think... <laughs> I took it, I think John Landau uh, helped me out. He said, look, he says, you know, sometimes the things that make, that are wrong with something are the same things that make that thing great. And that's the way it is in life. And that's the way art works. So I said, well, all right, let's put it out. And then you take this stuff on the stage and the performances in the mid 70s and into the late 70s get more and more developed, longer, as if you are trying to do, to lose yourself on stage. It's, it's really like no other performances that we had seen, anybody had seen until that moment, except maybe from James Brown and in, in, in soul music. What were you up to there? What, why well, so was, long? Losing myself was a big, something I was, I was shooting for, you know? I'd had enough of myself by that time to want to lose myself. And so I went on stage every night to kind of do exactly that. You know, it was a, it's, 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 playing is, is orgiastic. It's a moment of both incredible self-realization and self-erasure at the same time. You disappear and blend into all the other people that are out there and into the notes and the chords and the music that you've written, you kind of rise up and vanish into it. And that was something I was pursuing. You know, I was pursuing intoxication. 
you know, why have people gotten intoxicated since the beginning of time? Uh, why will the war on drugs never be successful? Because people need to lose themselves. We can only stand so much of ourselves. But so, you, uh, but you, <laughs> but, uh, but, but on that, that topic, you never, you didn't lose yourself in drugs. In fact, you had a no drugs rule for yourself well, and the best I, you yeah, could manage. I was too frightened. I, I was, I was also very, it, it it took me so long to find a piece of myself that I could live with that I was very frightened with losing that when it came to uh, other substances, you know. Plus, I had, I'd lived around a lot of drug takers. I'd seen some of the really worst effects, you know. I had friends that killed themselves and friends that really kind of went and never came back. And, and so I was very frightened of it, so it, just, it wasn't for me. You once said that the audience, the audience part. I'll the audience, take some now, however. Yeah. <laughs> if you have any. <laughs> I've got something here. All right. <laughs> I think I've got 14 beta blockers, if you'd like to. Um, okay. You once said that the audience, for the audience's part, they come not to learn something, but to be reminded of something when they come to see a performer like you or something that they love deeply. Yeah, I mean, what are you doing? You're getting people in touch with the center of themselves, you know, their, their life force, you know, the part of them that feels, what do, why do people come to a show? Well, you want to be reminded of, of how it feels to be really alive, you know? And, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, that's what... That's what a great three-minute pop song does. In three minutes, you get the entire picture. You get the p possibility of life on Earth and what that can mean and what it can do for you and do for others. It's just encapsulated in three minutes of what feels like nothingness, but for some reason has had the power to uh, uh, inspire and lift up and, and, and just bring you closer to... Godhead or, or whatever, you know, you're, you're pursuing. So I always feel that's our job. Our job is, you know, we're uh, repairmen and we're reminders. You come to our show and we will, my, I've always figured I don't get paid necessarily to play this song or that song or this song. I get paid to be as present as I can conceivably be on every night that I'm out there because... Uh, you know, if, 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 if I'm there and, and I'm a lot, then I know that you're feeling it too. Initially, music was the first way that I kind of medicated my anxieties. And so I used it, being a good Catholic boy, of course, as a, yep, as a purification ritual, uh, which we are all taught to do. And I would simply go out and play until I just, you know, burned up or felt incandescent inside. And uh, that's what, at the end of the night, that's what momentarily satiated all the jagged little pieces of my puzzle that I had running around inside of me. And really that hasn't changed over the years. Uh, I basically worked till, uh, I always say exhaustion is my friend, you know, and partly because when I realized when I was done working the night, the next day, 
I'd feel incredibly clear and, and quite free and uh, simply too, too fucking tired to be depressed, you know? <laughs> it was like, I mean, you gotta have some energy for your, to, to be depressed. You gotta be able to get out there and search through the weeds for the one thing that's gonna, you know, bust your ass that particular day. And then you gotta put a lot of energy into that thing. Well, if you're too tired to do that, uh, you're feeling better, you know? You're feeling pretty good. <laughs> I spoke with Bruce Springsteen at the New Yorker Festival in 2016, and in a minute, we'll talk about how Springsteen's troubled relationship with his father fueled some of his very best songs. I'm David Remnick, and this is the New Yorker Radio Hour. Sandy, the fireworks are hailing over Little Eden tonight. Forcing a light. And all those stony faces left stranded on this warm July Down in time the circuits for a switch Blade lovers so fast, so shame, so sharp WNYC Studios is supported by Lincoln Financial The questions around retirement have gotten... tiring Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. This episode is brought to you by Empower. Can you retire early? Will there be enough money to leave an inheritance? Do you have savings for life's important milestones? If you have money questions, Empower has answers so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. I'm Roz Chast from The New Yorker. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. What if we could block a protein to stop runaway cell division? Dana-Farber laid the foundation for CDK4-6 inhibitors, drugs that are increasing the survival rate for many advanced breast cancers. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. Hi, I'm David Remnick. Three of The New Yorker's critics recently sat down to talk about the year in culture, and they declared 2023 to be the year, wait for it, the year of the doll. And they're not just talking about Barbie. Staff writers Alexandra Schwartz, Nomi Fry, and Vincent Cunningham always have an interesting take on what's happening in the movies and fiction and so much more. And you can find that on the podcast of The New Yorker Radio Hour. Now, our program today was recorded at the New Yorker Festival. 
our annual event featuring dozens of performances and interviews. And in honor of the holiday, we're spending the entire hour with Bruce Springsteen. I spoke with Springsteen in 2016 when he just published his autobiography, Born to Run. And in the book, he's incredibly frank about his troubled relationship with his dad and his own struggles with depression. One other thing that you were doing on stage was having a conversation with your father. There's a lot of songs about him. He, you, when you asked him which songs he liked the best, he said he liked the songs about him. <laughs> yeah. um, how did that help to do that, not to a shrink, which came along a little later, but to be on stage and as a, as a kind of warm-up to a lot of your songs, you would have these kind of spoken stories, some of which seem reflected almost, if not word for word, but very directly in, in, in the memoir, which they, they seemed absolutely true. Well, that was, it was an imperfect way to communicate with somebody who you love and, and whose love you're seeking, you know, it was, it, but it was the only thing that I had. I was always trying to sort out what our relationship was about, and uh, so I think I initially, obviously, Steinbeck's East of Eden, and I said, oh, oh I, I get that. You know, I've, I've had some of that. And uh, so I cast this a little bit in, you know, in, in that way, and it was a way that I could talk about our relationship without, I was never going to have a direct conversation about it because it just wasn't possible. My dad was very ill and, and wasn't susceptible to doing something like that, even on his best days, you know. So I had uh, my music, which is where I went to sort out everything in those days. And so that was naturally where I went to sort that out. And I just started to write about it. Uh, it worked out somewhat in the end, you know. Bruce, how did you become a more politically engaged person? That seemed to happen uh, over time. How did that happen and why? Well, we grew up like that. We, you know, we, if you we grew up in the 60s, you know, politics was, uh, it was just in the air. It was a cult part of your, your cultural experience. And we were doing things for, uh, you know, we were playing benefits for anti-Vietnam War benefits when we were 19 or 20. You know? And uh, so that was a very big part of just growing up at that time. And um, it was just, it just, it really came up out of my life experience. It, I, I didn't have some, uh, it wasn't any eureka moment or, or it just came out of living and growing. There was a piece in the Times and it went through various landscapes in your songs. Uh, uh, Youngstown, Badlands, South Dakota, Johnstown, Pennsylvania, which is the scene of the river, Darlington, South Carolina. These are all Trump voting areas. And, the, and white working class areas have changed dramatically in their political orientation since the days of, say, Bobby Kennedy. Mm -hmm. um, what do you make of that? And do you feel that you have as an acute um, hold on some of these landscapes as, as you once might have? Well, I, I think if you look at the history of, of Youngstown or any of the places you've mentioned, you see that uh, uh, basically I've written about the last 40 years of deindustrialization and globalization. Uh, hit a lot of people very, very, very hard. And uh, there was never, their concerns and their problems and their issues were never addressed by either party, really. So 
there's this sea of people out there who are waiting and hoping and looking for something that's going to uh, bring some meaning and, and back into their lives, you know. So it, it's, it's not a surprise if someone comes along and says, you want your jobs back, I'm going to bring them back. You're uncomfortable with the browning of America, I'm going to build a wall, keep all these folks out. Uh, you want to hear these kinds of solutions to your problems, unfortunately, they're, you know, they're fallacious and it's, 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 a, it's a con job, you know, but uh, uh, I completely understand why, why a voice like that would be appealing. I want to go, go back to, the, the, if, it seemed to me that there was a kind of framing in this, in this book that if the hero of the first part of the book in some ways was your mother, Adele, um, there's a heroic presence in the latter part of the book by your wife, Patty. And you're... It, it, it's it, here for <laughs> and, and she is a presence in the band, um, but you're the singular primary presence in the band. And then you come home where things are not as ecstatic. Oh. And she's the boss, <laughs> I gather. But also, and not to make, not to make it uh, too programmatic, but what holds you together? That you've had some tough times and tough years. This is not a book that has a fake happy ending where depression is concerned. Um, that this is something that, even if you're carried across a sea of people, uh, surfing the crowd and standing ovation after standing ovation, that has no effect whatsoever on the next morning. Necessarily. <laughs> if only. <laughs> In my wildest dreams. You know. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, you're, you're that person on stage for three hours. Most people get... Four, to, Bruce. Yeah. Some, four. <laughs> <laughs> you know. You know, so, uh, you, know, you, you know, Patty's got to live with me the other uh, 20 hours of the day. And uh, most people see the best of, of me, and she unfortunately bumps into the worst of me. <laughs> Hopefully not that regularly, but, but sometimes. And, but P, we connected right from the very, very beginning. We, Patty came down to New Jersey in 1974 before the, before the uh, Born to Run tour, and she came in and, and auditioned. We were going to take a singer out at the time, which we didn't end up doing, but we sat at the piano together, and she played me some of her songs, and uh, this was when we were, I was 24 years old, and she was probably 20, and then we saw each other regularly after that, and, and uh, I always kid Patty. I say, yeah, we get along because before... Before you were you, you were me, you know. She, she was a musician, uh, she was independent, uh, she was very, uh, uh, you know. Be careful. <laughs> you know, she was just very single-minded pursuit, pursuit of, of, of her work, and uh, we just had a lot in common, which, which has sustained us for a long time, and, and she's, uh, needless to say, that when I've had my rough times, she's been there and continues to be there 110%, you know, so. Hey, Bruce, you have, you have three kids who are grown, and I have to think that 
uh, no matter how great a father and, and, and mother, it's got to be a little weird on college visiting day, <laughs> or you're driving down this avenue or that and people are screaming Bruce. And how do you kind of um, keep that at bay for your children? At one point uh, you, you describe in yeah. the book. It's, it's not as... It's not as hard as people think, you know. It, it, a lot of it is how you think about it. I mean, basically, we just go about our business. If something a little strange starts to happen, you can kind of move away from it or you calm it down. Or uh, it's uh, it comes up once in a while. But we've been pretty lucky. Uh, uh, didn't, didn't you tell your kids that you're like Barney, the purple <laughs> dinosaur? Well, that was that was when they were little. You know, they were wondering, you know, why... It didn't work when they were in their 20s. <laughs> why do people want you to scribble your name? Pre-selfie, why do people want to scri you to scribble your name on a piece of paper? And they were just puzzled by people approaching us, you know. And I said, well, to explain it to them, I said, well, okay, you know Barney, you're a dinosaur. <laughs> right? Are you interested in Barney? He said, yeah, well, people are interested in me in the same way. Except grown-up people. So that actually... Yeah. And that worked? It actually made a lot of sense to them. And, uh, uh, and so they were pretty divorced from it. I think one day Evan came home and said, Dad, what's 10th Avenue freeze out? <laughs> so I said, 10th Avenue freeze out? Where'd you hear that? <laughs> you know, I heard it at school. Somebody said their, par their parents are always singing 10th Avenue freeze out. So I said, well... I don't know, I'll show you what it is. I got the guitar, and I started to play it to him, kind of Barney style. He said, no, Dad, no, Dad. Play it for real, all right? So uh, I played him the song. I said, that's it. That's, that's 10th Avenue Freeze Out, you know? And it seemed to, to satisfy him. And there was a moment when the children were actually saying, okay, we're old enough now to where we need to be a little bit of a part of what you're doing, and we need to understand that. And Patty was really good at saying, because at the time I was so overprotective of the children that I would just basically hide them. And, and she'd say, look, you know, they're going to grow up wondering, why were we being hidden all the time? <laughs> In the attic. And so she said, yeah, they may get their picture taken, but it's more important for them to feel that we stand as one, as a family. And uh, from then on, you know, we went about our business and I think the kids felt better if you took their hand and you, you know, whatever, walked to your, your car or your van. Even if somebody took a picture, they felt better that, that, that you were claiming them and, and, and they, were, uh, they knew they were an, uh, an intimate part of even that part of your life. One of the great stupid questions I've ever asked in an interview, and there are many. Um, as I said to you some years ago, well, you know, you jump off the piano and you run up and down the ramps and you crowd surf and it's probably gonna come a time, probably, not necessarily, definitely, <laughs> that you might find that when you wake up in the morning as I do, you feel like you've been beaten by a baseball bat and all I do is pick cartoons for a living and I don't do that. And I said, what are you gonna do when that happens? And you said, well, I won't do that anymore. Which was a stupid question. But can you see yourself becoming like, like an, you know, years and years from now, like an old blues man sitting in a chair doing your songs instead of jumping well, around like a well, maniac? Well, part of it is you have to not mind feeling like you've been beaten up with ah. a baseball. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so uh, pain has to become your friend. But um, I don't know, you know, I, I, as I say in the book, you know, I forget I have a piece where I say, well, you know, the day may come when, and when this happens, and when that happens, but not tonight, <laughs> and not right now. <laughs> so that's the way I approach it. I also will have no problem whatsoever sitting in a nice little chair with my acoustic guitar, uh, knocking out the songs from Nebraska or something. <laughs> Bruce, there is no end in sight so far. <laughs> Bruce Springsteen, thank you. Thanks. I was raised out of steelhead swamps in Jersey some misty years ago. Through the mud and the beard and the blood and the cheers, I seen champions come and go. Bruce Springsteen is the author of the autobiography, Born to Run, along with more than 20 top 10 albums. His most recent is a cover album of soul and R&B songs called Only the Strong Survive. I'm David Remnick. Thank you for joining us. If you're celebrating this week, I hope you have a wonderful holiday and all the best for the year to come. The New Yorker Radio Hour is a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Our theme music was composed and performed by Meryl Garbes of Tune Yards. This episode was produced by Max Balton, Adam Howard, Kalalia, David Krasnow, Jeffrey Masters, and Louis Mitchell. With guidance from Emily Botin and assistance from Michael May, David Gable, and Alejandra Deckett. Special thanks and best wishes to a few of our indispensable colleagues. Alex Barish, Julia Rothschild, Monica Rasek, Maggie Sheldon, Chris Kim, Alicia Allen, Mike Berry, Ben Richardson, Bruce Dionis, and Fergus McIntosh, along with the entire heroic team of fact-checkers at The New Yorker. Victor Guan is our art director, and Golden Cosmos created some of the illustrations for our website. Kamisha Lowry provides legal review. David Sakowski, Rob Christensen, and the engineering team keep us up and running. Julie Cohen does our final air check. Miriam Barnard does basically everything. And the senior vice president of WNYC Studios is Kenya Young. Now for contributing so much to the show this year, thank you and farewell to Brita Green and Ngofen and Putubwele. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported in part by the Charina Endowment Fund. This episode was brought to you by Empower. Are you ready for life's important milestones? What will your retirement look like? Do you know your net worth? Empower can help answer your money questions so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com.